Well, good morning, everybody. Man, I am so excited to be able to share from God's Word this morning. And um, I, I do want to start with this. I, I just felt very overwhelmed in worship. I, I thought worship was really powerful. But I wanted to say, um, I just feel <clears throat> that, you know, you know, God wants you to know today, there's somebody here today, you're struggling with whatever it is that you're struggling with, and He, he sees you, the Lord sees you this morning, and He knows what you're what your challenge is, and um, I just think of all the things he's done in my life in the last year, and you know, everybody in the room, we probably could think of some things God has done in your life, and so with this next challenge right now that you're facing, he sees you, and and he's just going to get you through it, he will, and so I just wanted to start with sharing that, but so I, I am really excited about what we're talking about today, I've loved this uh, series that we're in, but today's a special day because today is Pentecost Sunday. And so we celebrate on this day, we celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that took place 2,000 years ago after Jesus defeated death, sin, and the grave. The Holy Spirit was poured out on his followers in a really special way. Uh, We see that in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says that you will receive power When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere. Pentecost is about empowerment, a special empowerment that comes from the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, we see that fulfilled. It says that everyone was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. It was a physical symbol of a spiritual reality that God was doing within them that empowered them to do, uh, to witness, that empowered them to spread the gospel so they could do miracles and preach boldly all for the name of Jesus. And so we celebrate that today because that's available for everyone Everyone here in the room, if you're a Jesus follower, that's available for you. If you follow Jesus, you already have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's already with you. That's so special. And um, I wanted to share this too. Uh, we, we will be doing that Israel trip. It's next February, and we have packets out in the uh, cafe. You can grab one, get some more information, or go to the website to uh, find out more information there. And if you come, it's cool. Some of the places you'll get to go, this is on my last trip that I was there. I actually got to go to the upper room, and that's the upper room of the Last Supper. They believe could be the same room where this took place, where the Holy Spirit descended on them. And also, the southern steps where Peter gave his Pentecost sermon, and 3,000 people came to faith in God. It was amazing to be there. It was seriously amazing. And to stand on the southern steps and to imagine the scene and, and how the Holy Spirit had empowered Peter. He was a different person. He was like kind of more of a coward. He had run away from Jesus, and now he's preaching at the center of everything about who Jesus was. And 3,000 people give their life to God. It was amazing. And so if you're able to join us on this trip next year, you'll get to go to these places. There's, you know, a lot more we'll get to go to too. And so, uh, you know, it's just so cool. Pentecost is about empowerment. But we want to say this too. What you do with that power matters. Pentecost is about empowerment, but what you do with that power matters. Because the truth is, you can speak in tongues, but use that same tongue to gossip. You know, you can lay hands on someone and ask God for healing, 
and then use those same fingers to send an angry text message to someone, to give someone the bird when they cut you off. I saw it yesterday. You know, God can speak to you all day. And then you can go to your spouse and go to your kids and give them a piece of your mind. You can yell at them. You can have the Holy Spirit and make all the wrong decisions. And so the mark of spiritual maturity, it's not that you have the Holy Spirit. Again, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. And you can also be baptized in the Holy Spirit. That's what we celebrate, Pentecost Sunday, about empowerment. But that's not the mark of spiritual maturity. It's not that God speaks to you. Because actually God speaks to everybody. You know, you probably know somebody who's not a Christian who, wow, you've seen God speak to them. I mean, it's even all over the Bible. Balaam, that story of Balaam where God speaks through a donkey, that's not random. Balaam was like a witch doctor, animal whisperer. He did not worship the one true God. And so God knew how to speak to him. So God speaking to you is not the mark of spiritual maturity. How you respond to God's Spirit is the mark of spiritual maturity. How you respond to God's Spirit is the mark of spiritual maturity. There's a lot of examples we could give, of course, but in this David series, we've been focusing on the life of David, and I think it's clear in his life as well. We see this uh, comparing David and Saul. David's life uh, is mostly written in 1st and 2nd Samuel, and as you read the book of 1st Samuel, 1st Samuel is comparing and contrasting King David and King Saul. It's very clear. You're supposed to read it and kind of make those connections, like you see the rise of King Saul, and then the fall of King Saul. You see the rise of King David and, and, and kind of how they both respond to each other, how they respond to God. And so one of those ways is that they both had the Spirit of the Lord, but they responded in different ways. And so this is clear at David's anointing. He's age 14 or 15 at this point in time. So he'd be in Novation Youth with Pastor Paul. Okay, some Wednesday night, somebody comes and anoints the next president. You know, that's kind of like, that's kind of what's going on. Like, all right. So, but we see in his anointing, uh, David stood there. Samuel took the flask of olive oil. He brought anointed David with the oil. And the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Now, the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul. And so both David and Saul had the Spirit of the Lord, but it was the way that they responded that determined their greatness. Both David and Saul had the Spirit of the Lord, but it's the way they responded that determined their greatness. And this is significant because this is, you know, before Pentecost Sunday. This is about a thousand years before Jesus And so not everybody had the Holy Spirit available to them like we, you and I do today. The Holy Spirit would come on a specific individual for a specific task or to give specific authority like with King Saul or King David. And so this was a big deal. But we see that the way they responded determined their greatness. And so, you know, today we ask, what made David a great king? I mean, if how you respond to the Holy Spirit is the mark of spiritual maturity. You know, how, how, how do I respond? What, what made David a great king? And whether you're a king or not, you're a leader in some capacity. You're an influencer in some capacity. 
you're a mother, a father, a son, a daughter, brother, sister, a co-worker, manager, owner, board member, administrative assistant. Everyone here, we have a circle of influence. And so what made David a great king? And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I, I can't help myself. I just got to throw it up there at least. It's really cool. David, he's one of the most famous kings of history. And there was a period of time where very liberal scholarship started to believe, you know, we're not finding any evidence for him. Maybe, maybe he's really just a literary invention. And over the last few years, there's been some discoveries uh, that confirm not only did David exist, but he existed exactly as he is depicted in Scripture. And so it's really cool how the Bible continues to get the facts right. And again, if you come on this Israel trip, that picture of King David's palace, that's me standing in King David's palace. I took that picture. You can get to do that too next year in February. And uh, again, so the Bible, it's awesome because it gets the facts right. But the Bible isn't just about getting the facts right. It wants you to get your relationship with God right. That's what the Bible's trying to do. So again, how do I respond the right way to the Holy Spirit? We're comparing and contrasting David and Saul. What made David a great king? First, it's this. He focused on God's will, not my will. David focused on God's will, not my will. And my will is highlighted first because we're going to look at Saul. Saul, he made the kingship all about his will his dynasty, and his goals, while David continually checked his heart to make sure he was in God's will. And we see this. This is how the Lord responds to King Saul. He's become king. The Spirit of the Lord is with him. But the Lord said to Samuel, I'm sorry that I ever made Saul king, for he has not been loyal to me and has refused to obey my command." If you read the story, I would encourage you to do it because it's interesting. You know, don't let, don't let anyone ever tell you the Bible's not interesting. It really is. And uh, Saul, if you read his story, he seems really spiritual because there's a lot of points in the story where he goes and he prophesies with all, all the prophets of God. You know, it's like he, he, he's overcome by God's spirit. You know, he seems like a really spiritual guy, but the mark of spiritual maturity isn't how much you prophesy. It's how you respond to God's spirit. And Saul, he obeyed God when it was convenient for him. And when he didn't feel like it, he just didn't. Kind of like you and me, right? I mean, honestly, right? That's what we do. I do obey God, except just when I don't want to, you know? That's what we do. And that's what Saul did. And it's easy to do that. It's easy to focus on my will, even if you think you're living out God's mission. You know, as a pastor in ministry, you can think, well, I've devoted my whole life to God. Everything I do is for God. But as a pastor, you can get caught up in making things look the way you want it to be. We're going to make, uh, we're going to build it in my image. We're going to go this direction because that's what I want to do. And you have to check yourself and make sure it's not about you. And I hear people say, I don't think it's wrong to say this, but when I hear people talk about, oh, my ministry. Oh, well, my ministry is to do this. My ministry is to do that. Again, I don't think that's wrong. But sometimes that bothers me a little. Like, is it your ministry? I mean, who's this about? David knew 
It was about God's will. And so, again, David's life, he's anointed as king. He kills Goliath. He's part of Saul's household, and he's kind of like an army, a general. But Saul starts to unravel and really start to lose his mind, honestly. And, and he hates David because the people love him. So now David's a fugitive. And Pastor Jeff talked about that last week. I love this sermon series. You can go back and listen to the previous weeks. And so David has done nothing wrong. David has the spirit of the Lord. He's faithful to God. He has integrity. And his reward is that he's a fugitive for eight years. So you might, oh, well, David didn't have enough faith. Well, David didn't have the Holy Spirit. No, (laughs) he's doing everything the way God wants. He's on the run for eight years. And he has the opportunity to kill Saul, not just once, but twice. He could kill Saul. Uh, The way the story goes is David and his band of men are hiding in a cave. There's like all these caves everywhere. It's in a place called En Gedi. We'll be near near there when we go. And um, all these caves. So, I mean, it's, how, how could you find one person in, in any given cave? You, you have no idea. Well, Bible, the Bible says that um, Saul had to go to the bathroom. And so, again, don't let the Bible tell you it's not interesting because that's in there. It's in there, okay? So he had to go to the bathroom and he was taking his time. So use your, you know, imagination. He goes into the cave and it turns out it's the same cave David's hiding in. What, you know, how does that happen? And so maybe, you know, his eyes haven't adjusted or whatever. He's in the cave, and David and his men realize, wait a minute, dude, what are the chances of this? Wait, you're on the run from your life. God's anointed you as king. And so they say to him, right, now's your opportunity. Uh, now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord's telling you, I'll put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed for the Lord himself has chosen him. Most likely, if David had chosen to kill Saul, Saul's army probably would have submitted to David and recognized him as king. That's also just kind of how you secured your rule back then. You killed all of your opponents. (laughs) So most likely that would have happened. And honestly, if I was there with David, I I do kind of struggle sometimes with this story because I would have been right there telling him, dude, with all the kids, with everything, obviously this is a divine appointment. God has given this to you. And David probably would have become king, but murder would have been on his conscience. He would have become king, but he would have known it was because of his own doing, not because of God's doing. God's way may take longer, but it's not about me. That's something that David learned. It's not about me. It's about God's will, God's way, and God's time. I know I'm called to this. I know God's going to do this in my life. I've got this burning in my heart. I feel passionate about this. But he knew it's not about me. It's God's will, God's way, in God's time. And you know, just because somebody tells you something is God's will, doesn't mean that it is. And so David, he comes out of the mouth of the cave in front of everybody after Saul's done. Everybody sees the situation. Saul has 3,000 men with him. His army's there. And he shouts, May the Lord judge between us. 
Perhaps the Lord should punish you for what you're trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. As the old proverb says, from evil people come, come evil deeds. So you can be sure I will never harm you. As far as it depends on me, I'm not going to do a thing. I'm going to let God be the judge between you and me. Yeah, sure, I could take your life. I could get some revenge. I could get some payback. But I'm going to let God be the one to worry about that. Everyone in his army saw that. Everyone knew that he had the ability to take Saul's life, but he didn't do it. He knew it's not about me. It's about God's will, God's way, and God's time. And so what else made David a great king? He knew it was God's will, but also what made David a great king? Accountability, not carelessness. What made David a great king? Accountability, not carelessness. Saul was careless in his decision-making. Again, he followed the Lord sometimes, but other times he wouldn't worry about it. He thought that he was off the hook, that he didn't have to obey God's commands because, honestly, he's the king. God put him in charge. God gave him the Holy Spirit. So my word is law. I'm the king. I'm the leader. I can get out of it if I want. I don't have to answer to anyone. And you see this in the story. Samuel, the prophet, confronts him. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why'd you rush for the plunder? You did what was evil in the Lord's sight. But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. No, I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back the king. I destroyed everyone else. My troops brought back the best of the sheep, the cattle, the plunder, uh, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. At Gilgal. There's a couple of things here. You know, why did you disobey? Paul said, well, well I did. I, 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 like, I mostly did. <laughs> I mean, I do that all the time. I mostly obey God. I don't know if you... <laughs> yeah, how many times do you do that? God, well, God, I basically did. I, like, you know, majority obeyed you, God. You know, I didn't do 100%. I did, like, you know, 75%. I, I'm mostly doing what you asked me, God. And that's what Saul did. And even how he says, I mean, Saul's in a place where he's totally careless in his walk with God. He said, it's not even his God anymore. Well, that's your God. Let's make your God happy. And that's why, you know, on a personal level, I'm not offended when somebody of a different religion prays. If I'm like in a meeting, I go to these different, you know, like these clergy meetings, stuff like that. And I'm not offended by those things because to me, I'm like, well, that's your God. And I don't think he's real. So, like, I I don't think I'm accountable to that God, so it doesn't bother me. And you see, that's the attitude Saul has about the one true God. Well, I think I'll get out of it. I think mm, I have the Holy Spirit, right? I'm good. Saul mostly obeyed God. And, you know, we can do the same thing. Maybe with your job performance. You know, you can say, well, I know um, my good deeds are supposed to shine like a light for others to see. But I don't think management's noticing that. So I think I'm going to lodge a complaint about my boss because they don't realize how hard I work. And I'm going to negotiate a pay raise and everyone's going to see that I work my butt off around here. Or with your marriage. Well, I know I should be investing more time and energy and into my spouse, but I just, you know, I'm so tired at the end of the day. And, you know, I deserve to be happy, and we've tried. 
Honestly, if God doesn't fix them, I think I'm just going to give up. Or with a business, you go out somewhere, you say, yeah, I know, uh, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. But that waiter was pretty rude to me, honestly. So I'm going to complain. I'm going to let them know I don't like the product I received. I paid money for this, and so I'm going to get my money's worth. Or even with witnessing at your job, being a light for Christ, you know that that's what God has called you to. That's what he's called every Christian to. I, I know I should be a light at my job, but I'm a little afraid. I mean, what happens if they find out that I really am a Christian? What if they judge me? What if they think I'm judgmental? You know, I think I'm just, I'm not going to rock the boat. Uh, I'm not going to really talk about God. Um, I'm not going to be mean, right? So I'm mostly obeying God. That's what Saul did. We have the empowerment of God's Spirit, but we often live like we don't. We live carelessly and we live for ourselves. But David lived knowing that he was accountable to God. And so David has a second opportunity to kill Saul. First he's in this cave network in En Gedi. Now he's somewhere else. The desert of Ziph, totally wide open. Saul's got 3,000 men looking for him. And they camp for the night. And, you know, the way they did it back then, the whole army camps and the king, the leader, whoever, is right in the middle of them. So, you know, probably the safest spot. And the, he sleeps the spears right by his head, okay? And so David, now he's probably age 22, 23. And so he knows that Saul's camping and he has this idea with one of his guys, Abishai. He's like, look, look they're all there. They're all sleeping. You know, let's go have some fun. Maybe that's what they thought to themselves. But so David and Abishai, they went right into Saul's camp. They found him asleep. They made it all the way. They tiptoed their way to the middle of 3,000 men And Saul's there. How did they even do that? They get there, the spear stuck in the head by his head. Abner, Saul's bodyguard, is lying asleep. That guy's not even doing his job. We're here right now. And so Abishai says, God has surely handed your enemy over to you this time. You missed it the first time, David, but he's given you another chance. Isn't this great? And look, let me pin him to the ground. One thrust of the spear, I won't need to strike him twice. But David says, no, don't kill him. Who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed? Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? You know, surely the Lord will strike Saul down someday, or he'll die of old age or in battle. But the Lord forbid that I should kill the one he's anointed. All right, take his spear, the jug of water beside his head. Let's get out of here. It makes sense. It feels like a divine appointment. It does say that that sleep was from the Lord. That's how they were able to sneak in all the way over there. And Abishai, David, oh, I know you got these religious convictions. God doesn't want you to do it. So look, dude, I'll take care of it for you. One strike, dude, he's dead. You're king. And again, we can do that sometimes. Well, I, I wasn't the one who did it. I, you know, they did it. And I uh, just, it worked out for me. <laughs> But Dave, that's careless. David lived with accountability to God. David refused to violate the will of God in order to obtain the blessings of God. 
How could I do this and be guiltless before the Lord? He refused to violate the will of God in order to gain the promise of God. He knew he would one day become king. He was anointed for it. But he said, I'm not going to commit murder in order to get there. I'm not going to step on people to get what I think God should give to me. I'm not going to be careless. Even if somebody else tells me they think it's God's will, I'm going to be obedient to what I know God has called me to do. David learned it's not about me. It's about God, God's will, God's way, and God's time. And so what made David great? We want to respond the right way to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's available for all of us here in the room. But what we do with that power matters. And so David, hey, he knew it was about God's will. He knew it was about accountability. And David knew it was stewardship, not ownership. David knew it was stewardship, not ownership. Saul believed that the kingship was owed to him and that he owned that role. But David understood that he was simply a steward of God's people. And you see this when Saul is trying to justify actually to his son Jonathan, who is best friends with David. He's like, why do you want to kill David? He's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. And Saul's justification is as long as David, the son of Jesse, lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. So go get him so I can kill him. His justification is I'm the king and my descendants will be king forever. God gave me the kingship, so it's mine. He had that sense of ownership. We can't lose this kingdom. And you and I can feel that way. Maybe about a relationship or, I don't know, your business. I can't lose this. This is mine. I've invested too much time into this. This has become my identity. I own this. But David understood that he was simply a steward of God's people. David understood he was a steward of God's people. What happens is the story goes on and David continues to fight the house of Saul. Even after Saul eventually dies, he dies in battle. But for seven more years, David is still fighting the house of Saul. And it's because I'm, I really tried, guys. His name is Ishbosheth. Oh, I think I, I think I just said it. Ishbosheth, um, say that to your neighbor five times fast. It's not going to work. Uh, anyway, he was part of Saul's house. And he united 11 out of the 12 tribes of Israel against David. So for seven more years, David was anointed to be king, but he's fighting uh, for control. People are fighting him. People are saying, why don't you kill this guy? Why don't you assassinate him? David says, no, I refuse. I'm not going to do it. If this is what God wants, then fine. I'm just going to let God do what he wants. And so eventually, Ishbosheth is murdered uh, by somebody else. David mourns his death. But now David is finally going to become king. All the obstacles have been removed. And this is where David shows his true greatness, where he knew how to respond to God's spirit. It says that all the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron and told him, we're your own flesh and blood. In the past, when Saul was our king, you were the one who really led the forces of Israel. And the Lord told you, you will be the shepherd of my people Israel. You'll be Israel's leader. 
So there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel, and they anointed him king of Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and reigned 40 years in all. So David's waited some time. He was first anointed 14, 15, you know, novation youth. And then he was on the run for many years. He's in his 20s. So now he's 30, and he has some maturity maybe he didn't have at the time. And all of the elders of Israel present, all 12 tribes are there. And they're about to hand him the power. He's about to become the king. He already has all the influence. That's why they recognize him as king. He doesn't have the crown. They're going to give it to him. And what do you do? What did David do? He made a covenant with them. For our um, purposes, a covenant is kind of like making a contract. You know, if it, um, I agree, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. That's kind of what a covenant was like. And so for David, though, he's the king. This is completely unnecessary. He's the leader. His word is law. And hold on a second. All the tribes, 11 out of 12 of them, were against him just the other day. <laughs> now we're all, okay, David, uh, you're the guy. David, his first order as king could be like, yeah, and 11 out of 12 of you are dead. But no. Instead, he makes a covenant with them. Why? It's because of those three words right there. Before the Lord. He made a covenant with them before the Lord. David submitted to God's law. He submitted to the people he was king over, but he submitted to God's ways. David understood that he was a king, but not the king. And maybe a, an exercise that you could try is sub out king, because none of us are a king, but sub that out with whatever it might be for you. You're not, uh, I am a, I don't know, father, pastor, whatever. I am an owner. I'm not the owner. I'm not the one. I'm not the leader. I'm a leader. I'm not the leader. And that's what made David a great king. He knew that he was accountable to God, that he was a steward of what God had given him. And so he, uh, he focused on God's will, on accountability and stewardship. But here's the thing. If you're in the room today and maybe you're not a Christian, um, you may find this inspiring. Like, this is great, you know. Um, accountability, that's awesome. Like, I, I, I should do that, you know. But if you're in the room and you're a Christian, which is probably most of us who follow Jesus, this isn't simply, it's not enough to simply be inspired. Jesus actually makes this required of you and me, this kind of greatness this kind of humility. What made David a great king? This is actually required of us by Jesus. No matter what your area of influence is, a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, a co-worker, a manager, a business owner, board member, volunteer, an admin, assistant, whatever your role is, God actually requires this of you. Because it was about a thousand years later when Jesus was on the scene that he demonstrated this same kind of thing. It's an amazing passage of Scripture in John chapter 13. 
uh, John, it was written by John, Jesus' disciple, he watched this whole thing go down. And it's right before the Passover meal, we're going to take communion where, where Jesus um, had the Passover meal with his disciples. But right before the Passover meal, Scripture says that he knew his time had come, that he was going to die on the cross. He was also going to return to the Father. And John says that Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God, would return to God. So what do you do when you have all the power? Just like David, all the influence, maybe even without the crown or the title. What do you do? So he got up from the table. He took off his robe. He wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. And then he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was in his hand. The disciples are watching Jesus like, what are you doing? Like, stop. We, we have people for this. You're our rabbi. You're our teacher. We, we have people. We have, we have servants. We have slaves for this sort of thing to wash people's feet. Your feet got dirty back then. They didn't have shoes like we do today. And so you had, had a slave come and wash your feet. They knew what Jesus had done with his hands. How he had done miracles. And now he's using them to wash their dirty feet. But a lot of you guys, you, you, uh, you know the story. Jesus, what does he say? He says, well, you know, you call me teacher and Lord. That's who I am. And since I, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. I tell you the truth, slaves are not greater than their master. Messenger is not important, more important than the one who sends the message. And now that you know these things, God will bless you if you do them. And so, how do you respond to the Holy Spirit? Jesus models for us, when you have power, look for some feet to wash. Pastor Bonnie, could you come and, and give us some music behind us? When you have power, look for feet to wash. That's what we've said. Pentecost is all about empowerment. That's what we celebrate on this day. But the mark of spiritual maturity is how you respond, what you do, how you respond to the Holy Spirit. And so David and Saul both had the Spirit of the Lord, but the way they responded determined their greatness. So what made David a great king? It was God's will, not my will. Accountability, not carelessness. And stewardship, not ownership. Jesus moves us from simply being inspired by David's example to making it required if you're a Christ follower. This is something that really you need the power of the Holy Spirit in order to do. And so how will you respond to the Holy Spirit? How will you respond to the Holy Spirit? As our ushers are getting ready, um, I'm going to ask that they come forward as soon as you guys are able to, to begin to distribute the elements. We're going to take communion this morning. And as they begin to distribute the elements, Scripture says that we need to examine ourselves before we take communion. We want to take communion in a worthy manner. And so even take the message today. Where have perhaps you made it about your will Instead of God's will, and you guys, you guys are good to serve, 
Where, perhaps, have you been careless instead of accountable? Or where have you felt ownership instead of stewardship? How will you respond to the Holy Spirit? God has given you his spirit not so that you can pursue your career and make money and retire early. It's not so that you can know you pray more than someone else does and so between the two of us, I'm the spiritual one. No, it's so that you can be a witness where you are. Where perhaps have you been careless with your words? I think that's a really uh, great example with your words. Maybe uh, it was just a joke or well, I'm really passionate. Well, they're just too sensitive. And you can speak in tongues, but you're going to be accountable for the way that you use your tongue. So how will you respond to the Holy Spirit? Let's take a moment and examine ourselves so we take communion in a worthy manner this morning.